So as we begin, uh, I think I want to first just pause for a quick moment and look to the back of the room at the camera and recognize that we have begun live streaming as of the last few months. And so I wanna speak directly to the people that are at home. I think some of us here physically, but also there's people right now have been forced to quarantine and to isolate and they've been forced to not be present with us in a physical sense. And so I wanna just like, if you're at home right now, let you know that you are not unclean, you are not unseen, you're not forgotten. There are people here that love you, that miss you. And I also speak that to you guys, if any of you are here and over the next couple of weeks or months have to be at home, uh, you're not forgotten, you're not missed, you're not overlooked, no one's seeing you as a leper. Um, and so if you're our home right now, I just wanna say thank you uh, for kind of caring for us, being gracious with us and sacrificing being here physically uh, for our well-being. So thank you. Um, and again, I also just speak that for any of us. Like that, that's kind of our, our posture as a church, knowing this is a pretty hard time right now for many of us. So we are in a, a new Advent series, which I'm really excited about. Um, Advent means coming. And so we are uh, using this, this time of season to just focus on the coming of Christ, what that means for us. And we're doing that by looking at four typical uh, Christian um, Christmas songs, and they are uh, angels we've heard on high, come thou long expected Jesus, hark the herald angels sing in joy to the world. Today, I get to uh, talk about hark the herald angels sing. Jared, let me choose any one I wanted. And I figured, hey, I can't let you take both the angel ones. So I better jump in there and nab it. But uh, actually the real reason I chose this is I was really excited because the refrain, the, the kind of chorus of hark the herald angels sing is the angels proclaiming like glory to the newborn king. And I've been really excited about that as we've been in Matthew, right? Matthew is all about the kingdom of God, Jesus being born as king of the Jews, the true king. And so it's something I've been really excited to consider. And so I'm really excited to look at that in the song today. So our plan for today is we're gonna talk about three main things. First, this is a great opportunity to talk about music and song in the life of a Christian. So I wanna come at that from a, an angle maybe you haven't considered before. Um, and then we're going to look at the hymn writer himself, Charles Wesley. And then we are going to look at actually just the lyrics, the music, the theology within Hark the Herald Angels Sing, okay? So uh, as we begin, I wanna talk about music and song in the life of a Christian. Now, I could talk about this through the lens of Christian tradition and the church, and that's really valuable, it's beautiful. There's lots we can learn there, but I wanna come at it from maybe like a third point of view. So I wanna get outside of the four walls of the church for a moment. And I want us to consider, like, here's my question to you. This is an actual question. You don't have to say anything out loud though. What realms of humanity does music touch? What realms of humanity does music touch? What regions of the world? What time periods through all of history? What states of emotion does music touch? Now think of this question. Where does music come from? I think we can recognize that music spans all regions of the globe. It spans all of human history. It touches an incredible swath of human emotion. So where does it come from? 
out of the millions of forms and styles from dubstep to hip hop to Mongolian throat singing. Like there are these millions of styles of music across all of historical time, global space and human culture. So who made it, right? Billions of people, different perspectives, different languages, different technologies, different instruments, different dialects. All of them have expressed themselves and participated in music and song, right? And so here's my perspective based on the universality and like just the beauty of that. My perspective is that music is not the development, like the accidental development of pattern finding in noise in such a way we just happen to find pleasing. It's not an accidentally developed nor evolved thing that humans just picked up somewhere along the way. I believe that God created all things. We actually read that in our call to worship, that in all things were created through him. And so I think if we know that God created all things, it's possible that God delighted to imagine music. Like music actually was sourced through his imagination and he invented it. And then he gifted it to us as a unique ability and as a unique way of expressing our human experience to him and to others. I believe that he created us as musical beings. So think about this, right? If, the way, if he created us as musical beings, I think there's uh, logic and rationale because we know that music moves us. Music bypasses our cognition and somehow it can do things in our souls. It can bring us to joy. It can bring us to somberness and sobriety. It does things deep in us where it can awaken like our spirits and our hearts. And as Christians, like, we believe that and we understand that God created us with this incredible privilege where he created us with the privilege of being in relationship with him in an integrated, wholehearted way. We actually are in relationship with him with all of us, not just our brains and our smarts, not just with our emotions and our hearts, but all of us are integrated, wholehearted human selves are in wholehearted relationship with him. And that is gonna be kind of this driving theme, even as we look at Charles Wesley and as we look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, okay? Now, um, I want to acknowledge that um, through the history of God's people, they've used music as a way of expressing themselves. They've used uh, music as a way of worshiping him. Um, and I just want to point out that it's not arbitrary. It's not religious, right? If we've been created to be in wholehearted, all of ourselves relationship with God, it makes sense that if he's created us as musical beings, that all of us, including our musical selves, would be directed at him, that he's gifted us this musical ability that does things deep in us, touches our, our spirits and our hearts in a unique way. He's actually gifted us with that as a way of engaging with him. And that is really, really meaningful. So it's an act of devotion that involves both our minds and our hearts and our physical bodies. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't have my stool. Hopefully I don't spill all over myself. Um, I just want to acknowledge, like when we worship together as a group of folks, it can be awkward. You could look around at the people next to you and be perplexed. You could see them, maybe it's like the hand, maybe it's like the swaying, but they're having an emotional experience through worship and song that maybe you don't quite understand. And I don't want you to feel left out nor behind for that. I don't want you to feel like you need to force yourself to muster the right emotions. Like you need to force yourselves to be in that same emotional place. And so if you are perplexed about like, why are these people having this emotional experience? Why does this seem so dry and awkward for me? 
like, I just wanna let you know it's okay. And I also wanna try to answer your experience with a bit of a question that gets to what is worship, right? Is worship only the warm fuzzies and like the proper emotions or is worship something more? So really quickly, this is not the main point of our day-to-day, but I just wanna like talk to you. If you're in that hard spot of looking around with confusion at the people around you, you feel like you're missing out. I wanna like just welcome you and let you consider this for a second. So what is worship, right? If you're singing the words, but you're not getting this experience that you observe in others, like what's the deal? What's going on? Well, worship is really about heart posture, right? Worship is about connection with God. It's a way of engaging your whole self in truth-filled praise. True worship doesn't come based on falsities. True worship comes with the truth of who God is and the way that that strikes you and changes you and transforms you. So worship is acknowledging God's beauty. It's seeing him. It's being exposed to him. But it's also about allowing his truth to actually stir us, to bring us alive, right? Music if you're guarded against it, won't have any effect on you. Being in relationship with God, if you're guarded against him, won't have any effect on you. And so having any form of emotional worship, um, it only happens through open-heartedness to the king. And that means engaging with God in an integrated, wholehearted way, right? That's gonna be our theme for today. So a quick analogy, maybe this is confusing for you. What are you talking about, Trevor? That's abstracts. Real quick analogy. Someone you know comes up to you and says, hey, I love you. And you're like, oh, great, thanks. Boing. And it kind of bounces off your heart, doesn't mean much. Sounds nice, but like there's no like deep eye connection and like really stirring. So someone can easily say, I love you. Bing, kind of bounces off your heart, doesn't do much, right? But maybe in the movies, you've seen like these meaningful, heartfelt, I love you moments. And so you're looking at them like, hey, how come they have that? But when I hear I love you, it doesn't mean anything. So similar to worship, right? We can look at something and try to mimic it. So maybe you've seen the notebook. And so now you're with your girlfriend or your spouse and you're like, I love you. And you like have the sprinkler out, hosing yourself down. So you're like, anyways. All I'm doing is I'm acknowledging that when we can say something meaningful, we can say the right words and yet it can bounce off of our hearts and not do anything to us, right? You've experienced that, but you've also likely experienced where you've allowed your heart to be open towards somebody, where they've said, I love you, and you've opened your heart and you've actually received that and it's done something to you. Your spirit and your emotions awake to that person and you become endeared to them. Worship with God is the exact same way. You can say all the right words. You can have all the right effects and the rain and the notebook moments. You can try to mimic those things and yet it still feels empty and hollow. And so unless we're engaging with God in an open-hearted, integrated, wholehearted way, it's not gonna mean much. So with that, I just wanna say there's no pressure to be and perform the right way in worship. If you're feeling this, there's, um, the goal is not for you to have the emotional warm fuzzies. The goal is for you to have the patience with yourself to understand your heart is deep. And if your heart is guarded against God, just be patient and ask him to teach you a new way of relating with him. Ask him to teach you, God, how do I open my heart to you? How do I dwell on your truths? Let them pass my barriers and actually let my spirit and my heart become awake to you. So with that, I'm gonna pivot to the life of Charles Wesley, okay? And here's where this theme continues running is because not only is Charles Wesley fascinating as a character in history, but you'll see in his story as well as his lyrics that he is a man who worshiped and wrote hymns in an open-hearted, receptive way 
with like an integrated, wholehearted manner. That was how he engaged with God through his lyrics. And that's why his hymns have stuck with us and are so meaningful. So some history, before we get into Charles Wesley specifically, I think it's helpful and important to just think of like the historical context he was in. So he was born in England in 1707 and he died in 1788. Not all of us understand dates in history, so I'm gonna paint a really quick picture. If you are more familiar with American history, here's some things that might root you. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706 and he died in 1790. So Benjamin Franklin lived almost year for year as Charles Wesley. So if you're familiar with Benjamin Franklin's role in America and that point of history, it's nearly identical in uh, global history. Um, again, thinking just within America's things that we can root ourselves in, um, there were English colonies all along the Eastern seaboard and they had driven out most Native American uh, tribes. But the majority of America um, inland from basically Minnesota to Carolina was um, Native American tribes. The majority of America was actually populated by Native Americans. I think that's really interesting. Um, if you've seen the movie, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, this is it, right? So the Revolutionary War was in 1775, the end of Charles Wesley's life. So all of the political turmoil and the colonization leading up to The Patriot and Mel Gibson, like think black powder muskets, think bayonets and swords. Um, this was that time period that he lived in, the time of English colonies in the Americas. Um, so it was interesting. He actually was a missionary in America when it was English. So at this point in time, right, late middle 1700s, the Church of England was the religious superpower. The Church of England was the dominant cultural expectation was that you would participate in that church expression. It was the cultural norm. And so the majority of his life was within the Church of England, but not only from a functional working standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint. And so he lived within the negative effects of the Church of England being the dominant political and cultural superpower. We see his early life was shaped by that cultural expectation in a pretty hollow way. And the latter part of his life was actually seeking reform from that and seeking revival, not only in England, but in the Americas. So some things about his life, right? Now that we kind of understand this time period. So if you're thinking like candles and outhouses and cobblestone streets, like you're in the right century, okay? Um, so he was born 1707 in England, the youngest of 18 kids, Right? 18 kids is what you get when there's no contraceptives and you get married at a young age. Uh, notably, one of his brothers was John Wesley. So if you're familiar with Wesleyan theology or the Methodists, uh, that was founded by Charles and his brother, John. Their dad's name was Samuel, and he actually was a minister within the Anglican church, which means the Church of England. And so uh, Charles grew up in a home that was Christian, right? I grew up in a Christian home. That was Charles's experience. Uh, his dad um, and his mother formed him around traditional religious behaviors and disciplines and expectations. And so interestingly, uh, he grew up in a Christian home. He was formed in all the right ways. And when he was a young man, he and his brother went to Oxford. And when they got to Oxford, they encountered kind of this uh, hedonistic academic lifestyle. It was all about knowledge and pleasure seeking. And so he and his brother, John had grown up Christian and were kind of pushing back on that. And so they started what they called the Holy Club. And so it was basically this group of college age men that wanted to take seriously their faith. And so they expressed that in a 
very devoted way through prayer and fasting and knowledge of the scriptures. They would go do prison ministries. They would teach out in public places. Like they, they lived this really radically obedient and on mission life. And so he had done this for a couple of years with his brother, John. And then um, later on went and actually became a missionary. So what's interesting when you look at Charles's life, especially his early adulthood, when you look at it on paper, like he sounds like a Christian home run hitter. Like he's doing all the right things. He's got all the right zeal and all the right passions. But when he reflects on this point of his life, he actually considered himself unsaved. He did not know Jesus. I think there's a lot of freedom that we might find in this and we'll see this later on. So um, in 1735, so Charles is now um, probably like just before 30 years old. So think me, right? Like I'm late 20s. Uh, the brothers Wesley, both John and Charles, they actually sailed for the English colonies of America uh, and they went to Georgia. And so they were in Georgia as ministers and missionaries. Their job was to build relationships within the American colonies. They were supposed to uh, help plant churches and be teachers, be ministers. And after about a year, year to two years of really not doing very good, uh, they ended up sailing home. Like it, it was a complete failure, uh, whether it was because of difficulties of like cross-cultural experiences, um, they basically went home kind of tails tucked. And, and I don't wanna have much blame on them, but that is what happened. And so they both actually went back to England. They continued in the Anglican church as ministers, which is really interesting. But you'll see that later on, they both worked for reform and revival within the Church of England. So here is where he had this really interesting kind of revival experience. At the age of 31 years old, he's just experienced a failed mission in the American colonies. And he's on his way home on a transatlantic sailboat and he gets sick. And so he's experiencing sickness and travels uh, or hardship travels. And he's in bed and there's a group of Christians called Moravians. And this little group of Christians um, was taking care of him. And as he got to know them and befriend them in his sickness, uh, it began to change his understanding of God. This group of Christians called Moravians, uh, they placed this really high emphasis on a personal relationship with God. They also, they pushed it a little bit to like semi-mystical um, engagements with God and with Christ. But what they taught him was like a personal open-heartedness an integrated wholehearted way of being in relationship with Jesus and with God. And so at the same time that he was kind of befriending this group of Christians, uh, he was also reading Martin Luther's commentaries on Galatians. If you're familiar with Galatians, uh, it's all about like personal saving faith rather than tradition nor heritage nor works. And so as he's reading these things, he actually opened his heart in a new way to knowing and receiving Christ. And so it was this like particularly personal experience of Christ, not only in a relational way, but also in like, a salvific, like a salvation way. And so all of a sudden this, this idea of like hope in Christ, salvation, relationship with God, it was no longer this outside thing that motivates all that I do. All of a sudden there was this personal language of God's love where God actually loved you. God actually loved me, him. And that personal, like I've come for you, kind of cut through some of those guards in his heart and struck him in a new way. And so this is where he describes for the first time ever, this is where I experienced God. 
This is where my trust was no longer that I'm, I'm in the church of England, that I'm doing all the right things, that I'm fasting and praying. All of a sudden, he said, I'm in relationship with God through his grace and he is my salvation. And so it was within this point that he actually began writing hymns with a new passion. And, and that's where Hark the Herald Angels Sings come from. So uh, he went back to England. He continued to work in a, a preaching and a teaching setting as well as writing hymnals. Um, and so interestingly, uh, though he wrote lots of sermons, he was like a very prolific teacher. He excelled as a poet and a hymnist, right? He is well known throughout history and Christian tradition for his music and for his hymns. And so um, he actually had a really particular reason. So on top of just being naturally gifted and having a natural disposition towards writing and towards music and lyrics, he actually had a a kind of a secondary reason for focusing on this. Uh, This was, he lived in a time period 100 years after the printing press. So there were very few books. There were very few people that knew how to read. And so when people would engage in Christian learning, you couldn't just say, oh, go, go grab something off our book table. It's five bucks, right? Um, people couldn't do that. And so the, the Christian education occurred dominantly within Christian community and within the church. And so part of his primary intentions in writing hymns was he wanted to teach and he wanted people to remember and be able to take things home with him or with them. And so these songs and these, po- this, these poems that he wrote, he did it because they could be readily memorized and they were really functional teaching tools for like deep and healthy understanding of God. And we'll see that in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It is this broad and deep understanding of God that if you listen to it and participate in it enough, you'll go home singing deep theology. So he died in 1788, he was 80 years old. So no, the myth that you die at 40 years old, 200 years ago was not true. He died at 80. Like that's a pretty old dude, especially uh, when you have an outhouse to go to. Um, and so realistically, like um, there's, this, there's this really interesting kind of argued fact about him of like, he penned an extraordinary amount of hymns. Extraordinary. Uh, the lowest number is like 6,000. 6,000 musical pieces. At, at the high estimates, it's like just, just brushing 9,000. 9,000 pieces of music, whether that's poetry or hymns that were recorded in some sort of like printed fashion. That's outrageous. And so um, I think that part of the reason that he is famous through history is not just because he was prolific. It's not just because he had 9,000 pieces of work, but I think it's this, again, this thing, this open-hearted, integrated, wholehearted way of relating with God. I think part of the reason that Christian tradition has valued and prized his writing so much and the reason it's lasted is because he writes about this personal experience with God, this direct to me saving grace, this thing that brings our spirits and our hearts alive. So he describes these Christian truths, not just in like the abstract and like the theology, but he describes them with like, this is my experience of God based on the truths found in the Bible. And, he not, and then he just adds like lyrical flourishes and, and good hymn writing. So that's where we're gonna switch right now is into Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And hopefully we're going to see and begin to appreciate some of his skill as a songwriter, some of uh, his, the ways that he lived an open-hearted, integrated, wholehearted relationship with God and how that came out in some of his writing. <clears throat> so as we go through this, you'll notice that... Um, 
it has some weird language. It's kind of like old English. It's because this was written again in the 1700s and the King James version of the Bible was the, the primarily used version. So if you kind of stumble your way through the King James version, like it sounds a lot like this because that's the, the era that they lived in. Um, what's interesting about Hark the Herald Angels Sing is just like many older hymns, there's no one guy that gets full credit. So Charles Wesley penned it originally as a hymn and he included it in a hymn book and he called it a hymn for Christmas day. And so it had completely different, um, not completely different lyrics, but it had slightly different lyrics and a completely different tune. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have cassette recorders back in the 1700s. So I don't know what it sounded like and I can't play you a version. <clears throat> but um, it has been modified. So there's actually a photo, which is pretty cool, Alex, if you'd throw it up, of this was his original hymn book. And so you can see even just some of, if you'll notice the title, Hymn for Chris Moth's Day. Uh, that's actually how they used to write S's, right? So there's all sorts of old English that is, um, we can see comes through in, as it is now. So you can see it used to be quite a bit longer. We've shortened it a little bit. We've changed some words. You'll notice it right under Hymn for Christmas Day, that first paragraph, hark, how the Vulcan rings. Um, Welkin is an, an old English word that means like the vault of the heavens. And so it was this like the reverberations of the song in the heavens, right? Um, and so uh, there's kind of this funny, <clears throat> I was reading a commentary on this and a historian imagines um, George Whitfield was a friend of his who altered this and adjusted it. So uh, this historical commentator imagines a dialogue between Charles and his friend, George. And Charles going to George and saying, hey, I've, I've got this great hymn. And, Charles, er, and uh, George saying, wow, Charles, this is beautiful, but what on earth is a welkin? <laughs> um, apparently even Charles Wesley had kind of a flair for like old English and tradition and, and older language. And so um, 14 years after this was written, his friend George Whitfield, the guy who says, oh, great, but what's a Welkin? Um, his friend George actually re, uh, not translated it, uh, he altered it um, and changed it to the words that we know now. So this was 14 years after the original printing. Um, and then it pretty much laid dormant as it was for about a hundred years. And hundred years later um, in, let's see, 1858, a, a guy named William Cummings, who was English, took a piece of German um, cantata music, which means music meant for singing. And he took um, Hymn for Christmas Day and he took this German piece of music and he kind of like smashed them together. Um, and that was a hundred years after the fact, but that is basically how we get it today. That is the history of how it's been changed over the last two to 300 years. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the lyrics, the meanings themselves. Um, so this song traditionally has four stanzas. Uh, as a church today, we actually only sang the first two. Um, I'm gonna focus on the first three. And then there's also a fourth that traditionally isn't actually sung with most versions of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, so we're not gonna look at it. But as we go through these three stanzas today, they all have one particular theme. So each verse of this song has a purpose. So the purpose of the first stanza, it's all about announcement. It's announcement of good news. It's supposed to bring us to a joyful response. The second stanza is all about the mystery of God's plan in history and creation. It's all about the mystery of Christ's personhood. And then the third stanza is all about the accomplishment of Christ, the result and the conclusion of the King's coming.
So what I'm gonna do is I'm going to read through Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And don't worry, I'm not gonna try to sing it, but what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read it to you in prose fashion, as if I was reading a book. And hopefully this gives us like just a different look, right? We're not kind of distracted by the music and the old familiarities, but we just get to enjoy it as something new. Now, before we do this, I just need to clarify, hark, the herald angels sing. What is hark? Um, As we, like very first thing you see, hark. Um, Hark is from an old English word, right? Uh, remember, he, he originally chose the old English word welkin. Um, he also chose the old English word hark, which um, comes from the word hearken, right? Hearken to me, listen to me. And so the word hark here is kind of a command that just says like, listen, pay attention, look. So that's all it is. Um, is anyone here familiar with the word yeet? <laughs> yeet? Um, <laughs> I think Hark is going to be the new Yeet. So in 10 years, you're going to have a bunch of teenagers like, Hark! You're welcome, youth pastor. So um, I'm just going to read this to you. Hark, listen, the angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, Join the triumph of the skies and with the angelic host proclaim. Proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Listen, hark, the angels are singing. Glory to the newborn king. Christ by highest heaven is adored. Christ is the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. He's the offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, you can see the Godhead or the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, listen, the angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life is for all he brings. He's risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by. He's born that man no more may die. He's born to raise the sons of earth. He was born to give them second birth. Hark, listen, the angels sing glory to the newborn king. Last week in Angels We've Heard on High, we read Luke chapter two. So I'm not gonna read it again, but this is derivative. It's, it's all about the coming king. It's the angelic hosts proclaiming and announcing the newborn king is here, glory to him. So um, here in stanza number one, as we just look at this, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners have been reconciled. Joyful, be joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem in glory to the newborn king. We see, right, this is about announcement. It's about joy. And we can see that why the angels are singing, right? The angels are singing because the king has arrived. The king arriving, the king being born is the impetus. It's the start of their singing and their joy. We know that there will, because of the king, there will now be peace on earth. We know that mercy will be experienced rather than judgment. We know that God and sinners have been reconciled. 
All of this is because of the king. The angel said that would have nothing to sing about. There would be no joy. There would be no peace without the coming of the king. And so the king is good news. Something I want to point out in this is this language of peace on earth and all ye nations rise. As I sing this, I'm reminded of the global implications of the coming of the king. And I'm reminded that Christmas and Advent is not a Christian holiday, or excuse me, not an American holiday. This is not an American gospel that we rejoice in. This is not an American savior that we wait for and we're excited and we rejoice in. Nor is this a 21st century king or gospel. This is not developed in the West. This is the savior of all of human history, right? This is all of human culture. Earlier, we asked the question, what does music touch? All people, all regions, all times, all emotions. This is the king that comes to save all people in all time, and he touches all emotions. This is a Jesus that loves his enemies and yours. And this is the news that's worth shouting about. The news of your savior and your king in 21st century America, it's not very impressive, but the king who comes to reconcile all of creation, all of history, that is something that like gets us to rise with joy. So we see that the proper response here, the angels model for us proper response. This is good news. We should be joyful about this. The right and proper response for all of the earth is to rise with joy. We are to join the shouts of victory. We know that sin is dead. We've been reconciled. All of creation and all of the angelic beings sing this and we join them. So as we kind of move off of the first stanza, I just wanna point out this really beautiful um, kind of dualistic thing going on here. First is we are announcing that the king has come. In history, the king has already come. But this is also prophetic. This is a prophetic announcement that the king will return, right? The king will come again. And so we both like look backwards with rejoicing that the king has come and we're in this process of redemption, but we also have great joy because we have something to await and we know that he will come. And so this is both a a present and a forward speaking song and reality. Now, as we look at the second stanza, I'm just gonna read this again. Christ by highest heaven is adored. Christ is the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. He's the offspring of a virgin's womb. He's veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, listen, the angels sing glory to the newborn king. So again, our focus for this, our theme, you can see it all over, is the mystery of God. We see um, latent time, behold him come. I'll explain that. But we also see veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This is speaking to the mystery that God has a plan for all of creation. Jesus didn't come as a one-off. He actually, uh, this is part of a larger plan, right? The last stands we spoke of the past celebration, but also the forward prophecy. Same thing. We know that there is a forward prophecy. There is a mysterious plan. There's something about God in human form, God walking on earth that is mysterious. 
and it's beautiful. And so we're seeing that in these lyrics. So the, I think the first kind of confusing thing we come across here that really needs explanation is this uh, language, late in time, behold him come. I know I was pretty confused by that. I had to look it up. Um, so is God running late? Like, did God forget his coffee and like, oh crap, and I had to go back and get it? No, uh, God is not late. He has perfect timing. And so he's not running behind. So um, there's actually multiple ways to understand time. I think we all experience this, but to explain it within biblical tradition, right? Uh, a large part of our Bible was written in Greek and the Greek have two different words for time to help them differentiate what we often understand. Um, they use the words chronos and kairos. So chronos is where we get the word like chronometer, right? That's what this thing is, a chronometer, it measures time. Uh, we get a language like chronology, the study of time. So chronos is the way that we think of clocks and schedules and calendars and the passing of time, right? But then uh, the Greek also uses the word kairos to differentiate a different function of time. And so kairos is used to explain specific moments and specific seasons and purposes. And so the biblical word for kairos is used in verses like this, quote, at just the right time, kairos, while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. So in essence, kairos is used when there's a purposeful time, when part of God's redemptive plan, this particular kairos time has come, this appointed time has come. And so, it, that's why if you ever read the Old Testament um, or messianic prophecies, they can kind of skip over like hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's because God's not saying, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this chronos time. He's saying in my appointed times, within my redemptive plan, in my kairos time, specific things are planned to occur. And so um, for example, in kairos time, this redemptive plan, um, <clears throat> we've been in the last of days. We've been in the late in time of Kairos time since Jesus's birth. So Jesus's birth was the last times in God's redemptive plan. We know that there will be a coming and kind of the end of times. Um, we're not really gonna go into that today, but that's what this is talking about. So late in time is not <laughs> Charles Wesley saying, oh, God's late. Where's he been all this time? It's him saying, we're in these last moments. These last moments have arrived where God's appointed time has come. Jesus, the King has arrived. And so moving on from that, we see um, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. We just see that um, Christ was veiled. Uh, we see that um, Jesus, part of the Trinity, became an incarnate human being. Um, with the words Emmanuel, you guys might remember this from Matthew chapter one. Emmanuel means God with us. And so Charles Wesley is capturing this reality. Right? He's capturing the mystery that God veiled himself. He emptied himself and became a human. And he was pleased to dwell with men. Philippians chapter two, uh, this won't be on the screen, but this is where Charles Wesley draws this from. Philippians chapter two says this, um, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He veiled himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. Now, our last stanza, if you remember, first stanza is all about announcement, um, joy, and proclamation. Our second stanza is about the mystery of God choosing to come as a human being, the mystery of God emptying himself, choosing to let himself die for our rescue. And now the final stanza, we see accomplishment. We see conclusion. We see the result of the king's coming. So I'll read this again. Hail, the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail, He's the son of righteousness. He is light and life to all he brings. He has risen with healing in his wings. Mild, he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth to give them second birth. Hark, listen, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. The first titles talk about who Jesus is and they actually reference Old Testament scripture. They point out that Jesus is heaven born, right? Godhead come incarnate. He's the essence of righteousness. He is light and life. He brings healing wherever he goes. Um, This language of light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, actually comes from Malachi. So this is an Old Testament prophecy. It's Malachi chapter four, verse two, and this will be up here. It's really interesting. Uh, This is Malachi speaking to the people of Israel. And he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise, will bring light and life and it will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and you will skip about like calves from the stall. This is this imagery of uh, the presence of the king coming and bringing light and life and the response being like dancing with joy, right? We see again, and I already read this, so I'm not gonna read it again, but we see uh, this language, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And again, this is speaking to um, Philippians chapter two, that he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see in these last three lines of born that man may no, no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give him second birth. This is the good news conclusion. So if there is announcement of the king's coming, the response of joy, there's the mystery of how he does it and why he's doing it and what his time is. But the conclusion is born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth to give them second birth. This is the result of his sacrifice. This is why we speak the good news so regularly is because this is more than just, uh, you can kind of reshape your life around some good behavioral practices, but you have been saved. You've been redeemed by the good King who came to give himself for you. And the good news is that it has eternal implications. We see that Jesus defeats death through coming through emptying himself. We see that he gives a second birth, right? This Christian language, born again, is this literal, we've been given second birth. We've been adopted into his family. We have a new life. We've been destined for restored creation where death is no longer part of the picture. So in conclusion, my theme since the very beginning has been open-hearted, integrated, wholehearted, whole person, 
um, relationship with God. And I think we see that both in the life of Charles Wesley, we see that in the lyrics that he's capturing, we see that in this response of joy. Like we are only able to have joy, to be moved by this music, if we're able to dwell on the lyrics and we're able to dwell on the meaning and the scriptural foundations in those things. And we're like willing to let those things penetrate and actually move us, stir our spirits and awaken our hearts. So we see that Charles Wesley did that. He wrote that, he captured that. And so when we sing, we get to engage with God and we get to rejoice in his sovereignty and his plan of the mystery of who he is. We get to rejoice in his timing, his healing and his rescue. So as I end, I just wanna remind us that we've been reading Matthew. What is Matthew all about? Matthew is all about the plan of God. If you guys remember Matthew chapter one, uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the plan and the way that Kairos time plays itself out in history, that Jesus came, Jesus meaning God saves. He was given the title Emmanuel, that means God with us. And after Christmas and the Advent season, and we get back into Matthew, we're gonna continue to see who Jesus was as the incarnate deity, as the Godhead in flesh. And we're gonna continue to learn about why he's a good king, why he's like worth joy in our hearts, what he saves us from, but also what he saves us for. I hope you have made some natural connections, even just as we've gone through these first three stanzas, where you're starting to see just like all these um, biblical foundations. I think it's really exciting that uh, not just to see um, kind of these like jumbled ways that we engage as a church community, but where like the words we sing, the ways we participate in life together, they're actually rooted in scripture, they're informed and deepened by that. <laughs> so with that, um, I would just love to pray. And I'd love to invite the worship guys up and we're gonna take communion. I appreciate you guys. This has been kind of a deep dive for me. Uh, I know I can be kind of a heady thinker. um, And this has been, I know very like lots and lots of information. This was like 20 sermons kind of rolled up in one, skipping along the tops. And so I know it was just like a lot of talking and a lot of random information. So I thank you guys. Um, Would you just pray with me? And then we will, um, then we'll take communion. Father, I think the thing that I am struck with as we we come to a close is your Kairos time. I know that was a pretty small part of all of this, but this reality that you have set a plan in place out of love for us. Um, You knew that we needed intervention and you've come with light and life. You've come with healing in your wings. You've come Emmanuel, God with us. Father, would you... um, turn our hearts to joy, to open-heartedness with you, that we would like joyfully rise with the nations, that we would like proclaim with the angels, glory to you, the King. Amen.